As we continue in our time of worship and study this morning, I want to encourage you to turn your Bible to Psalms 110. Psalm 110. And let me explain to you why we landed in Psalm 110 this morning. This year we are reading through the Bible together as a church, and each week we are taking the text that we study from the previous week's reading. So this week, Psalm 110 was a part of our reading, if you're following along with that Bible reading plan. By the way, if you aren't following along with the Bible reading plan, it's not too late to jump in. Later in the service, when some announcement slides are rolling on the screens, you'll see one that has a QR code. You can scan that QR code and it'll take you to our website, or you can just go to our website, fbcchickasha.org, and there on the, the page where our messages live, there's a link to a Bible reading plan that that we're following this year. And so this week, Psalm 110 was a part of our text. All right, I'm gonna tell on myself for just a moment this morning that I'm a bit of a nerd. And uh, I, I like, there are some kind of nerdy things that I like, and one of those things is puzzles. I like putting together puzzles. I like solving problems, working on puzzles, but you know, especially the kind that have a thousand people pieces, some of you are looking at each other and you're like, that's not that nerdy really. And so for the people who think it's not that nerdy, you're probably kind of nerdy like me, okay? But that's okay, because it's a good club to be in. We can, we can celebrate that together. But I really like to put together puzzles. I like working on. So when I do, there's a strategy that I follow. There's really, I think, two types of puzzle uh, people, right? There are those of us who work systematically and we like putting together puzzles. And then there are people who stare at all of the pieces and can just make no sense of it. And it just overwhelms them and they can, uh, and, and they, they kind of shut down, right? Well, people who like the strategy, people who like the, the pieces, who like working the puzzles, doing those things, you probably have a strategy that you work with. You, you're, you've got some kind of picture so that you know what the puzzle is supposed to look like. And maybe you look for little clues, little contextual clues. Maybe it's certain things that have a similar color. And so you start out by turning all the pieces over and you're, you're looking for things that might be grouped together. Maybe there's some detail, something in the picture, in the image itself, and you recognize that if I put these pieces together, even if I don't know how all those pieces fit yet, I know that they're going to go together eventually. And then also you probably identify the edges, right? You probably start by finding the pieces that have a straight edge to them because you know that's going to go on the edge of the puzzle. And, and if you can, you want to find the four corners and you want to arrange the four corners of the puzzle and then begin putting together the edges. And then you kind of work your way from there and you you begin to fill in the pieces and little by little, bit by bit, the puzzle comes together. That's a lot like what's happening here with the Old Testament. As we're reading through the Old Testament, what I hope that you're seeing is the pieces of the puzzle come together. So by now, we're in Psalm 110. If you look at the Bible, just, I mean, literally look at the Bible as you open it, you can tell we're about halfway through the Bible. That makes sense, right? Because this is June the 25th, so we're about halfway through the year as well. So as we get to nearly the halfway point, we'll kind of cross over the halfway point this week as we get into the month of July. And as we approach the halfway point in reading through the Bible, you have some of the pieces that have come together. By now, you have the edges 
put together. By now, the corners are in place. By now, you have some of the parts that are grouped together by key features, by key distinguishing marks that you know, okay, these things are going to work together. These pieces are going to go with these pieces, and I can look at the picture, and I can see. And that's exactly what's happening as we read through the Bible. We see that the Bible is giving us one story. It's 66 books, but it's one story, and the pieces are coming together so that now we are in the book of Psalms, and we're reading Psalms or songs that David has written. This one in particular is a Psalm of David. We know that David was the author. And so there are some things that we understand from David, who he was, his role in the kingdom of Israel, his position not only as king, but as covenant bearer, as as, as a part of God's special promise that through David, he would send a Messiah. Through David, there would be a king that would rule forever over God's people. And so we have some of these pieces that are starting to fit together, starting to come together. And what David is doing in Psalm 110 in particular is he's giving us some key puzzle pieces for us to work with. In fact, in Psalm 110, we have this language that speaks of the coming Messiah, this language about a Lord who would rule over God's people and his authority and his dominion as the one who would sit at the right hand of God. And that's key language that the New Testament later will help us to make greater sense of. But I want to point to the fact that these are the pieces that are coming together. So if you're reading through the Bible and you're starting to feel like, maybe in a way that you've never seen it before, if this is your first time particularly to read through the Bible, if you're starting to see how the pieces fit together, then you are having the light bulb moment. You're having the the aha that we were hoping for because that's the reason why it's so important for us to read the Bible this way is because it puts the pieces together for us to see how it all fits fits as a part of God's plan and his purpose for our lives. And so in Psalm 110, in particular, we understand this to be true, as I've mentioned, because of some of the things that the New Testament says. In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is speaking with a group of people who had questioned him about some things. There were often these religious people in Jesus' day who would try to catch Jesus in some way. They would try to catch him in his words. They would try to catch him by asking these public questions, in effect, sort of putting him on trial, at least in the court of public opinion, right, by trying to nail him down. And so they're going to ask what they feel like are pointed or hardline questions. And the whole purpose of that is to try to catch Jesus in something so that they could say, aha, see, there it is. That's the thing, that this Jesus is a false teacher. He's a false prophet. And in fact, that's the very thing that they did. That's the very way that they, that they arrested, that they tried and ultimately crucified him was by trumping up false charges of Jesus' claims to be the God, the Christ. Now, they were false claims, not because Jesus didn't make those claims. In fact, he did make those claims, but they were false charges in the sense that they said, no, there's no way you could be the Christ. There's no way you could be the Messiah when in reality he was. And so they used that against him. That's exactly what they're doing in Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees gather together and they ask Jesus a question. What do you say about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And Jesus says to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? And then Jesus quotes in Matthew 22 from Psalm 
110. He quotes these verses, the first few verses from Psalm 110. What is Jesus doing there? Jesus is putting together the puzzle pieces. He's helping us to see how all of this fits together and that it's pointing towards something greater than David and that Jesus himself was this Lord that Psalm 110 speaks about. So let's read together Psalm 110. And I want you to notice a couple of, a couple of key things Briefly, I'm just going to point these out, and then we're going to read through Psalm 110. First of all, notice the difference between the uses of the word Lord in Psalm 110. Sometimes the word Lord is capitalized in all caps, and sometimes the word Lord is with a capital, it's, it's like proper case, right? So it's got a capital L, but then lowercase O-R-D. The reason is that points to something in the original language that's really important. In the Hebrew language, in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the scholars, the, the Masorites, those were the, that was the group of Hebrew scholars who were responsible for, for writing out the Old Testament in Hebrew. They were so serious about not wanting to take the Lord's name in vain that when they would come to, in the text, the place where God's name would be listed, they would alter God's name in such a way so that they, they sort of invented a word. They, Hebrew, the word, or the language itself, was originally written without consonants, with only vowels. And so, the Hebrew language, when you see the Hebrew language, you read it from right to left, and as it's written, it only has consonants. The vowels were added later to help preserve the proper pronunciation. So, when the name of God was originally written, it would have been written as Y-H-W-H, or yod Hate vav Hate. Those are the names of the Hebrew letters, yod Hate vav Hate. And so, when, it, when they would come to that, later as they were adding in the consonants, they added the consonants from the word Adonai, which is the word Lord. They added the consonants for Adonai to, I'm sorry, the vowels. I said that backwards. They added the vowels for Adonai to the consonants for Yahweh, as we know it, or Y-H-V-H. And so, when they're adding the vowels, I think I said a minute ago it was originally written without consonants, and then I said it's all consonants. That doesn't make sense, right? It's only, originally it was only consonants, no vowels. Vowels were added, added later, the vowel sounds. And so, as the vowels were added, and they added in these vowels from Adonai to the consonants for Yahweh, it invented this new word, Yehovah, or Jehovah, as we know it, when you smash all that together. So, in the, in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all capital, that is the word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew, but as it's written and then later translated into Greek, for what was known as the Septuagint, they, they wrote that as the word Yehovah or Jehovah. And so, that's why it's capitalized this way. Then the word Lord, as you see it, would be just the word Adonai, just the word Lord itself, okay? That's important because as you read through this, you read the word Lord multiple times, and it's pointing to different persons. When you see capital, a, or capital letters Lord, that's referring to God the Father, Lord with the capital L, but then lowercase o-r-d, in its original context would have been pointing to some other Lord, some other king. But then as Jesus and the writers of the New Testament 
speak of it and use it later, they help us to understand that really David was speaking prophetically about the Christ who was to come. And so in reality, we could say all capital Lord, that's God the Father. Capital L, lowercase Lord, that's God the Son, that's Jesus, okay? That's an important, because it's going to help us make sense of and understand Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, and he's speaking again there, you of the Lord, the Jesus, right? The capital L, lowercase Lord. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's an important figure, Melchizedek, that we'll explain more about in a few minutes. But understand this, Melchizedek was an ancient priest who also was a king. And so he filled dual roles. He was both priest and king over the ancient city of Salem, which by the time that David is writing this would have been in David's context, the modern city of Jerusalem, okay? Verse five, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So who are these lords that Psalm 110 is talking about? And, and what is all this language about shattering the enemies and, and defeating the nations and sitting at the right? What is all of this speaking to? Well, in a really beautiful way, we, we understand that this is speaking of Jesus and his victory and his victory ultimately over sin and death and the fact that Jesus now is seated at the right hand of the Father and that is symbolic of his power and his authority. Now, in the truest sense, we understand through our doctrine, our theology of the Trinity, that both God the Father and God the Son are one. And so, the, the distinctions here are more in terms of helping us to conceptualize and understand the, how the, the persons of the Trinity work together, when in reality, God is not somehow separate. And, and so, but, but that language of the right hand, that's really key. That's really important. In fact, it speaks to Jesus' position, his position of authority. But not only does it speak to his position of authority, as we're going to see, it also speaks to his power and his work on our behalf. And so let's look together this morning and let's understand these two key things that Psalm 110 brings together. See, in ancient culture, in ancient culture, there are two pictures here that we see in Psalm 110 that, that don't make so much sense to us, at least not in our American culture. And, and one is the picture of the right hand, the right hand of the throne. The right hand of the throne is a position that is preserved or reserved, I should say, for the highest level of authority in the kingdom. And so 
the king would have someone sit at his right hand, and that would signify that this person is second only to me, that this person has the highest, the most authority that can be given. All authority is entrusted to this person who would be seated at the right hand. And so by saying that the Lord sits at the right hand of the Lord, or in other words, to say that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, means that all authority is given to Jesus. All, all authority is bestowed to him. That's really significant because unless Jesus has all power and all authority, then ultimately the work that he accomplishes on the cross wouldn't, wouldn't have been sufficient for you and for me. He needs all authority in order, to, in order to subject his enemies, in order to conquer completely, in order to truly pay the price for our sin. But that's exactly what that's exactly what Jesus does. In fact, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, we read this. Exodus 15, 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Notice the word Lord there, even in Exodus, is lowercase. It's capitalized, of course, because it's referring to uh, a specific person, but it's, it's lowercase. That, so that's the word Adonai. Your right hand, Lord, O Adonai. Your right hand is glorious in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. And so in the ancient culture, they understood this great significance of the right hand of the throne. That's a position of highest power and highest honor. That's important. A second thing that we see that we read in this, that's a part of an ancient culture, an ancient understanding, is the idea of the enemies under their feet. Okay, so we read that and we read the language about your enemies being underfoot. Now, this is a little bit graphic. I'm going to try to keep it as, as, as PG as possible. But think about the fact that when, when forces would meet on a battlefield and they would fight one another, and at the end of the battle, the dead would lie fallen on the battlefield. Literally, the dead would lie on the ground. And those who were alive, those who were still standing, who were the conquerors, who were the victors, who were the winners of the battle, they would be, they would be left alive and on their feet and walking around, standing on the battlefield, standing in victory. And so it's a literal image of enemies that are brought low in, in death or destruction and the victor who's left standing at the end of the battle. But not only that, that became not only literal, but figuratively important as well. In fact, we read in the book of Joshua chapter 10, we read about a time when Joshua has conquered a people as, as he was instructed to lead Israel into the promised land and to conquer their enemies and drive out their enemies. And we read in Joshua chapter 10, verse 24, about a time when they brought conquered kings before Joshua. And, and look at what Joshua says. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and they put feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And so what we see here is in this figurative language, it's speaking to a literal reality. 1 Corinthians tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and that he has put subject to him all his enemies. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
beginning in verse 20. I'm going to read for this from this, and, and just you'll be able to see it on the screens. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is speaking to what Jesus has done, right? Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Meaning that the only thing that's not put under the authority of Jesus is, of course, Jesus himself because he rules as, as sufficient, as, as conquering victor. Verse 28, and when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, Paul has a really good way of writing in what we might think of as sort of a circular argument. And so sometimes when you read Paul, you, you scratch your head and you think, what did he just say? I think this happens to be one of those passages where you really kind of have to comb through this slowly, phrase by phrase, word by word, to, to kind of take it apart to really understand. Let me just say, I've done all that work for you. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying that Jesus is the one who has conquered all the enemies. And the last enemy, the ultimate enemy, it's, is death itself. And Jesus conquered death with his resurrection. And thus he proves, he proves that he is all in all. So you see, the image of Jesus seated at the right hand of God shows us, it shows us the power in Jesus' position the power in Jesus' position. In Psalm 110, I told you that there's power in his position. That's, that's an important thing. We see his position and his power represented here. And the power in Jesus' position is this, that Jesus is the conquering victor. He is the one ultimately who has defeated sin and death on our behalf. He has conquered sin and death so that we might be forgiven and set free. That's really good news. But it's also really important because the truth is that you and I, we can't do that for ourselves. We can't conquer sin and death on our own. We needed something, someone greater than us to, to win that battle for us. And what Psalm 10 is speaking about in a future sense and what Jesus was alluding to in Matthew 22 and what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15 and what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 7 is that's exactly who Jesus is. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is the conqueror. He is the victor. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who conquered sin and death on our behalf so that we might be forgiven. This is a really important point for us to understand. In fact, this image of Jesus seated at the right hand of God, it accomplishes well, it, it instructs us about several important things. First of all, when we understand that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, that authenticates his place as the true Messiah. In other words, that helps us to know that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Mark chapter 16, verse 19, we read that the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. So this is at the ascension of Jesus. 
that the Gospels tell us that as Jesus ascended from this earth, that his new place, his permanent place of residence, in this moment even, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, enthroned in the heavenlies, and he has authority over all things. This authenticates his place as the true Messiah. He truly is the chosen one that David wrote about in Psalm 110. Not only that, it informs our prayers. It informs our prayers because what the Bible goes on to tell us is that Jesus, now seated in this place of authority, intercedes on our behalf. One of the things that the person would do, the person who was seated at the right hand of the throne, is they would intercede on behalf of those who would approach the throne. So in many ancient cultures, you did not just approach the throne of the king. The king would be surrounded by a royal guard. And anyone who approached the throne uninvited was subject to be killed because this was something you didn't do. You, you were perceived as a threat if you were to approach the throne without being invited to approach the throne, but the person at the right hand who might be involved in the, deeply involved in the affairs of the kingdom would know and, and might say to the king, no, 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 he's, he's okay, she's okay. Let them, let them approach. And they would intercede. They would, they would speak for or speak on behalf of the person who might be approaching the throne. That would happen in ancient culture. You remember a few week, weeks ago in our study of Ruth, as we were reading through, and, we, and, we, and I said Ruth, I meant Esther, as we were studying through and we, when we looked at the story of Esther, we talked about the fact that Esther approached the throne and that that was unheard of. You didn't just approach the throne. Well, the picture here, the image of Jesus at the right hand means that he's interceding on our behalf. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 tells us who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our one who is interceding on our behalf. So it informs our prayers, knowing that Jesus himself intercedes. Did you know that when you pray and you don't know what to pray and you come before God and you're, and you're weighed down heavy with a burden, that Jesus himself is interceding on, beha- on your behalf. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your burdens. He knows your troubles. And he's interceding on your behalf so that God would be working for you. That's a picture of the love of God, the power of God, and the fact that all of those things are for you. They're turned for you in your favor. But third, we understand this is, again, based on Jesus, the power in Jesus' position. It instructs us about the priority of our lives. When we understand that Jesus has authority over all things, that ought to instruct us on the the priority for our lives, meaning that we understand that the things of Christ should come first. The things of Christ should be the things that are about Jesus, the things that that, that are his and are of him. That ought to be first place, first priority in our hearts and our lives. Colossians chapter three, verse one, we read, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see again that language of Jesus at the right hand of the throne? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. First priority for us, of first importance for us, ought to be the things of Christ. The things that we ought to pursue, the things that we cherish, the things that we chase, the things that we work toward ought to be the things of Jesus, the things that we invest our lives in. 
the things that your time and your energy and your efforts go to ultimately ought to be things of, of Christ, the things that are of eternal consequence. Because that's what it means to live for Jesus. And so you see in your notes, if you're following along, there's a, a point of application. And this is, this is key. I want you to write this down. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, you have an advocate on high. Understand this. This is so significant for our understanding of who Jesus is and how we relate to him as our Lord is to know that he is for us. He intercedes on our behalf and that we can trust him and we can follow him. More than that, we can subject ourselves to his authority willingly, knowing that his ways are good, that he is for us and he can be trusted Jesus, in his final moments with his disciples, says something that's really powerful to them that I've told you before, I've always kind of struggled against this because if I could, I think there was nothing I would want more than for Jesus to come and live with me, right? To come and and maybe better, it would be better for me to say for me to live with him. There's nothing I would want more than for Jesus to be on this earth and then to be one of his disciples, to just get to wake up and and live life with Jesus and sit at his feet and learn from him and, and be led by him and taught by him. But Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 16, he actually says, but it's for your good that I go away because unless I leave, the helper won't come. That's in John chapter 16, verse seven. And so what Jesus is telling his disciples is actually good for you guys that I should go away because when I go away, I will send the helper. That's the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's the word in the Greek language. That word helper is the Greek word paraclete. And that literally means an advocate, but it's the word that we get for the Holy Spirit. And so he's sending the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate to come and advocate on our behalf. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and because he's interceding on your behalf, you have an advocate on high. That means there's nothing that you will encounter today or tomorrow or for the rest of your life that God doesn't know about and that he isn't actively working in a way that is for his glory and your good. There's nothing that you can come up against that he doesn't have power and authority over, and he will use that power and authority that will honor and glorify himself and that it will always work for your good. And that's important for us to know because in this world, we're gonna experience some hardship and some trouble. In fact, in John 16, later in John 16, it's the very last verse of John chapter 16, Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, I tell you the truth in this world, you will face trouble, but take heart, he goes to say, I have overcome the world. So we can face the hardship and the difficulty and the trouble that we're against in this life, knowing that Jesus conquered sin and death on our behalf. Your advocate, the one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, reigns supremely so that you have an advocate on high. That is such good news. Now, when David is writing that, in Psalm 110, I think he has some awareness of things to come, but he couldn't have fully comprehended. I don't think he could have fully understood. And yet, through the the leadership of God's Holy Spirit, through the inspiration even of the Holy Spirit, he's writing these words. And later, 
Jesus and the writers in the New Testament, they put together the puzzle pieces for us. They say, hey, don't miss it. This is how this fits. These, here's the picture that's coming together. These are the parts. These are the key elements. Let's put them together. Let's arrange them so that you see how this all fits so that you and I can live with confidence. We can live with confidence. So we see the power. We see the power in his position, but also we see the purpose in his priesthood, the purpose in his priesthood. Now, I told you that there's this mention of a character in verse 4, Melchizedek. And you might be scratching your head and thinking to yourself, who or what is a Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek was a person. And in Genesis chapter 14, we read about Melchizedek and his interaction with Abram. And so Abram has the land that God has promised to him in a covenant, the, the land that now David and the children of Israel live in, we come to call this the promised land, right? Because it's the land that God promised to Abram when he established his covenant with Abram in Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 14, Abram is fighting some battles against some other, some other kings, some other rulers in this land that God had promised to him. And Melchizedek the king of Salem, who also is a priest, a priest of God, comes to, comes to the defense of Abram, comes to his defense and is on his side. And so Abram pays tribute to Melchizedek. Now, throughout the Old Testament, a few different times, we see these references to Melchizedek, but, it, but it's just offered up somewhat casually. But when we get to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews again, puts together these pieces in a way that is so important. Now, we're not going to study it in great depth. I'm going to point to some of these things, and some of this you're going to have to work backward a little bit to, to read if you want to do this. But in Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, especially in Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews explains to us who Melchizedek is and why that matters. And what he tells us is that Melchizedek serves as a priest king, and that as a priest king, he's a type, he's a forerunner, a precursor, if you will, of the coming Messiah, that Melchizedek himself points to a greater Melchizedek, and the greater Melchizedek is Jesus, who was himself both priest and king. And what, the, what a priest would do is a priest would mediate on behalf of, of the people. You see again the significance of this role of intercession of Jesus as the one interceding, he mediates on our behalf. So in the Old Testament, in, that, in, in, in the Jewish religion, in their faith, the job of the priest was to offer sacrifices and offer worship on behalf of the people. The average person could not enter into the temple, into the holiest place, into the holy place, or even beyond that, another place that was called the holies of holies, or the most holy place. The average person couldn't do that. Only the priests, and only the high priest, even into the holy of holies, one time a year on the Day of Atonement. But his job was to mediate, in other words, to act on behalf of the people. And so he would enter into that sacred place and he would offer a sacrifice and he would sprinkle blood on the altar, the, the blood of the scapegoat or of the, 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 the sacrifice and the blood of rams and bulls. And these are parts of the animals of the, the sacrifices. And he would do that as an appeasement for the sins of the people. Not, not ultimately, it didn't last perfectly, and that's the point of what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. These things are significant, but again, they're pointing to something 
bigger. These things are important, but even when we understand these things, we realize that ultimately a priest walking into an altar and sprinkling blood on that altar isn't going to fix your problem of sin. You need something greater. But that symbol was meant to point you to something bigger. This week as we were prepping for deacon's baptism, uh, we were talking about the importance of baptism. And I do this with just about everyone that I baptize, but especially with our kids. And, and there's, there's an example that I always used. I use this with Deacon this week, and I, and I do this with other kids as we're explaining baptism. We'll talk about how baptism is a symbol of something bigger and greater. Baptism is a symbol that represents the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Romans chapter 4 tells us that. In fact, the language we use, look in your Bible sometime at Romans chapter 4, uh, Romans chapter 6, excuse me, verses 3 and 4. Romans 6, 3 and 4, the language we use about buried with Christ and dead and raised to walk in newness of life, that comes directly from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And that language about baptism, the significance of baptism, it's important because it points to something greater. And the example that I use is my wedding ring. When I take my wedding ring off, I'm still married because the ring isn't what makes me married. The ring is a symbol that points to something much greater, much more significant. On August the 12th, 2000, in front of 300 of our friends and family on what felt like the hottest day of my life, because it's an outdoor wedding, 104 degrees that day, and I'm dressed in a full tux, standing in the full sun, in the midst of all the people I knew, I pledged my life to Rayleigh, and I said, I will honor you, I will cherish you till death do us part. And the reason we're married is because we made that covenant promise to each other. The ring doesn't marry us. There's no special powers. I can take the ring off, and I'm still married, right? Shocker, I know. I can put the ring on, and I'm still married, right? Because the ring is a symbol, but it points to something bigger, and it's really important. That doesn't mean my wedding ring is insignificant. In fact, it's very important. If you ever see me with my when I'm not wearing my wedding ring, that probably means that either uh, my hand was involved in some kind of a horrible accident, or uh, I, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe I was doing dishes and it slipped off and I lost it or something. I just pray that never happens, right? Because I will wear this ring until the day I die and I will be buried in this ring because it's so important to me. It's significant, it's symbolic of something far greater. Well. The purpose of what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is these things are symbolic of something greater. Melchizedek has no power to save you from your sins, but he's symbolic of, he points toward something greater. And that something greater was the true priest king who really does mediate on your behalf because he is both the one who gave his life for you as the sacrifice, and he's the one who receives that sacrifice whose wrath is appeased by the sacrifice. And that, that's mind-blowing in a lot of ways, but it's important language because it, it tells us about the significance. In fact, in Hebrews 7, as we read about this and we understand Jesus as our priest, we see that Jesus supersedes every human priest, especially the Levitical, the Levites, the, the Hebrew priests, that Jesus is greater than any human priest. We see that Jesus introduces a new hope in, in Hebrews 7:19. We see that Jesus guarantees a better covenant in Hebrews 7, verse 22. We see that Jesus' reign will continue forever in Hebrews 7, verse 24. That Jesus saves to the uttermost in Hebrews 7, verse 25. And also, importantly again in Hebrews 7, 25, that he intercedes on our behalf. 
And so the application of this, this is also in your, in your notes, is this is important. Because Jesus is a priest, you have a mediator with God the Father. You have a mediator with God the Father. You have someone who mediates on your behalf with God the Father. Someone who says, they're good. The price is paid. Their sins are paid for. They've been, they've been redeemed because they have trusted in me by faith. Jesus himself is our mediator. Jesus himself is the one in that position of authority who intercedes on our behalf, who mediates a better covenant so that we read this in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Don't you see? What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus did what the law couldn't do. Jesus did what the old symbols of these things couldn't do. Jesus accomplishes it in a perfect way. If the blood of, of bulls and goats, if that worked for a, for a little while, Jesus' blood works forever. And he mediates these things on our behalf so that He's the mediator of a new covenant, which means that everyone who comes to Jesus in faith can be forgiven and set free, can be redeemed from their sin perfectly because his blood, and that's exactly what Psalm 110 is speaking to. That's exactly what David is pointing toward. He's saying in a way that perhaps he didn't even fully understand at the time that he wrote this. David is writing, he's saying, oh, May we trust in this one, this, this conquering victor who will come from Zion, the scepter of the Lord, the one who will defeat his enemies, the one who will rule and reign, the one who will bring peace as he drinks from the brook. But the language of Psalm 110 is all pointing us to know what Jesus would accomplish on our behalf so that we can come to him in faith. I wonder this morning, have you come to Jesus in faith? Have you trusted him for the forgiveness of your sin? Have you confessed him as Lord and Savior? Have you turned your life to him, believing that as you come to him in faith, he has the power to forgive you, to redeem you from your sin, to set you free? If that's never happened, then this morning, we want to offer you the opportunity to trust Jesus by faith. And so in a moment, we're going to move into a time of response. We often call this the invitation. And the reason we call it is because we're extending to you the invitation to respond to Jesus by faith today. And if you're ready to trust Jesus by faith, to surrender your life to him, just as we saw symbolically portrayed in Deacon's baptism this morning, if you're ready to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life, then would you come today and would you receive Jesus by faith? While we sing this song, Josh and I will be standing here at the front. We would love nothing more than to lead you in a prayer of faith that you might trust Jesus. We're gonna sing the song, I surrender all. 
And the, and the lines of the refrain, the chorus of the song go like this. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Jesus. I surrender. I surrender all. If you're ready today to surrender everything to Jesus, then we would encourage you that you would come. So after I pray in a moment, as we stand and we begin to sing, if the Lord is stirring your heart, you're ready to surrender to him, step out in the aisle, make your way forward. Let us pray with you that you might respond to Jesus in faith today. Would you bow your head with me now as we prepare for this moment of invitation? And even as I'm praying, I'm gonna pray over us. I'm gonna pray over you that God would speak to you and that if the Lord is stirring your heart today, that you might have boldness to act on faith, to surrender your life to Jesus today as we sing. So Lord, as we come to you in faith this morning, again, we trust not in our goodness, not in our record of right or wrong, not in the things that we've done, but in you, Jesus, in your sacrifice, in your promise, that you are the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. You are the one who has authority above all others and that you're acting on our behalf so that you, you intercede for us, you mediate on our behalf, you make a way for us to be forgiven and set free. And so we look to you in faith this morning, Lord. Move in our midst, move in our hearts that this would be the moment that we surrender to you. For those who have never surrendered, Lord, may this be the first moment. For those of us who have trusted in you by faith, renew within us the commitment to walk by faith, to live by faith, to do your work as we put your things first. In all things, we want to honor you. We pray this in your name. Amen.